This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Nirali Patel, who is the Group VP of Data Strategy at Liberty Global. So, Nirali, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Carl, for inviting me today. No, it's no problem at all. So, where we always start, Nirali, is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and journey to date uh, up until this point, if, uh, if you'd be so kind. I will try and keep it brief. I've had sort of 20 years in this field, so I don't want to bore everybody. Um, I think really simply, my mission, if I start with where I'm heading towards, is um, enabling businesses to adopt data analytics and AI as part of their DNA. And I kind of realised this as my mission quite a while back. So I'm quite lucky. Like I just said, I've had sort of 20 odd years in the field of data and I've done things from governance to management to analytics, regression to the mean models, et cetera. So I've had the opportunity to try different parts over the history and the evolution that the data industry's gone into. Um, But I have realised that kind of my path now is to help organizations embrace this asset that we've always had and I do that through hopefully in sort of a very flexible and collaborative way with them Um, and so just a quick highlight I've been the chief data officer at AXA I've recently been the data director of Insight Analytics because it's titled right at OpenReach and this is my first week at my new organization at Liberty Global. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much for that. So I guess obviously Liberty Global, uh, a US business. So our US listeners will probably be very familiar, but um, yeah, we've got some 20,000 listeners in 128 different countries as it stands as of this week. So there might be people out there that don't know who Liberty Global are. So do you just want to give us a bit of insight into that business and kind of who it is, what it does, et cetera? Yeah, sure. So Liberty Global um, isn't a business that I knew when I uh, when I first started the process with them. But since then, I found that it's like the world's largest sort of international TV and broadband company. Yeah. Um, has around $15 billion revenue about a year or so back. Probably the numbers have gone up knowing um, COVID in, you know, in between. But what um, the brands that people would probably recognise, many operate across Europe, but the brands that I recognise are like Vodafone, Ziggo, Telenet, Virgin Media, Sunrise, UPC. So the business is split into two aspects. There's a fixed mobile convergence, which is all their content, TV, um, broadband, etc. And that runs across Europe. And that is their sort of the infra- they're like national infrastructures in several countries across Europe. And then there's their second arm, right, which is their ventures arm. And this is where they do investments. So they are heavily invested in things like ITV, All3 Media, Formula E, Lionsgate, um, uh, what was the other one, Atlas Edge and stuff. So there is a huge, it's, it's a mergers acquisition slash, you know, telecoms 
business. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people, you know, who are listening, they'll probably, they'll probably recognize those brands, but won't recognize the, the, the group function that sits behind those brands. Yeah. But they're very much into whatever the consumer in the local brand is, is that is the brand that they'll operate under. Yeah. yeah. That gives them a little bit of an well, insight into the excitement I'm about to enter into, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Day three, so you've got to uncover most of this for yourself still, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so obviously you've, you've just landed there. What, what kind of, um, I guess within your role and responsibility, you know, what are you, what's, what's the, what have you been tasked with achieving? Why are you there? Why am I here? So I'm here to, um, I think the strap I'm going to use is sort of ensure that data and AI get the right airtime with the exec in, in the, at the group level and across sort of all the markets. So my focus really is around sort of articulating the data strategy across group um, in collaboration with all the markets um, and ideally with some of the ventures as well, you know, covering things from architecture to governance to use cases to culture, et cetera. But it's really around being that bridge between um, the sort of the exec business, you know, the execs of our businesses, as well as the actual sort of the data and AI teams and functions that exist there. That's what I've been told at the moment. As you're probably fully aware of, um, I will learn about what my real role and responsibilities in the coming <laughs> months. But that was um, the carrot that was dangled in front of me. Yeah, yeah, fine. So obviously, I'm always kind of keen and, and curious when someone like yourself who's worked you know at the top level across various different sectors um you know helping organizations to try and embed data into their dna and that whole kind of transformation and change journey etc has there been any kind of standout kind of insights or highlights that you've gleaned in respect of you know the similarities or differences across various different sectors or for the most part, is is data, data? No, it's not. <laughs> Let's be honest, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so I've worked in health, financial services, and telecoms now. It's a big, very big sectors. All three have been really data rich. All three have been really information rich, right? And all three want to do data, want to do AI, and want to do it brilliantly. I think the key similarity I found, and please feel free to anyone else to sort of disagree with this, is they all want to do that, but they haven't managed to link that want with the why. Mm. You know, so why do they want to do data? Why do they want to do it brilliantly outside of your financial reporting or your MI reporting or knowing the number of nurses on, you know, or engineers that are out there, etc.? Why do they want to do it? What does brilliantly mean? For them, so I think for all of them, they've got this vision, and I've seen that they want to get onto the top end of the maturity curve. You know, it's all embedded; it's all part of their DNA. But actually, I've spent a lot of my time in all sectors going. Actually, let's do what's right for you and your business, right, and where you are. It's not about being the best at data in the field that you're in. It's about being the best at data that gives you the best business outcomes. Yeah, so not doing data for data's sake, but doing it for an actual business reason. Um, and I think that initial understanding about going, right, this is where we are, this is where we want to get to, because we know that time, that investment, the business investment, right, is the other aspect, actually, I found a sort of common theme is it's the business people investment that they've kind of missed as well a little bit or not understood. 
it's all great getting a bunch of great data people together, but it's the business who use it on a day-to-day basis that can explain it to you and translate it as a data person. So getting that kind of investment's been a bit of a gap as well. Um, but I think the difference is, and I think many will say, so financial services a bit more head to the game, but I think that's due to all the visual, you know, the sort of regulatory reasons behind that. Health has been, and health was my longest term sort of area that I was in. That's been quite great at using it. Um, sort of an operational analytics level as you can imagine with doctors and nurses and ambulances and care etc and they have got into using you know robotics to do keyhole surgery and all of that so you know they've really embraced parts of it so you'll get parts of organizations that really embrace data and i'm getting on that journey but you'll get parts of organizations like i still like my spreadsheet and actually if that works and that's right for them and they don't need more, then I think that's quite, for me, it's quite okay. Um, so really different buy-ins. It's, I think, one key tip that I've hopefully landed in every organisation I work with is that not every part of your business is going to be excellent at data and AI. So that you be comfortable about having different levels of it, in your, you know, different levels of maturity. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I've been harping on now for years about this kind of whole um obsession and, and i guess kind of fear of missing out if you will i think that's driven a lot of businesses into trying to do data and analytics without connecting the the what and the why as as, as you very rightly said which is is really interesting have you ever landed in a place where you've been able to help the organizations you've been in at that time kind of connect those dots or, or is that kind of a laborious process of trying to uncover what the reason is and and is there ever a reason um yeah so i have actually been i've been lucky to land in organizations that are near the start of their journey on this um so they've been able to influence that actually i understand that so and so or your competitors being has you know gone out there and done excellent stuff in this one part but actually that's not the field or that's not the bit that you're interested in what you need to do actually you know a great example is um in one of my previous roles they were so embraced with wanting to do sort of um, data science and ai but their actual regular business intelligence you know the sort of visualization their operational metrics kpi reporting wasn't great so i'm like look guys let's take a step back and let's get that right because once you've got you know, it's a natural journey. In my head, it's a natural journey. If once you understand that um, your regular operational metrics, you know, are KPIs well, and you're able to see that in a good way, you can then understand that where your gaps are in your business or what needs improvement or what outcomes you want to work towards. And then you can go right now, what is the best solution for this? It may be, you know, an AI type model or a machine learning thing. It may be actually you know, a visualization, it may just be an app, mm. you know, so th- this whole sort of solution, the solution to my problem is ML. And actually, no, no, let's go back and let's understand your problem and then go, what is it? And you don't ever do that on your own either. So there was a lot of this whole silo thing as well in organizations, I see, which I still, you know, exist today about data is kind of this function that sits off to the side. And it really is important for it to be integrated with like, your business transformation department or something so it can you know affect a real good change kind of thing yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've said many a time on this podcast, I've lost count of the number of meetings I've sat in with businesses at the start of this journey, you know, before they've got a data analytics function set up and they were going to market immediately straight off the bat for data scientists. And I was kind of like, okay, what, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to do it? Um, and they couldn't ask you, they couldn't answer that question. Like, you know, you don't, you don't need data scientists, but they, you know, I guess they were almost felt they were forced into having a data science team because that's what everyone around them was, was doing. And they almost seemed to be needing to be doing that to kind of keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. So it's, um, it's really interesting. I guess when we first spoke, one of the things that really kind of intrigued me was, you know, you talked about the data transformation journey that you've been on in these organizations and you talked about change, but change at scale which is a really interesting concept because i think you know standalone use cases there's there's lots of them out there where there's been pockets of success but doing it holistically you know in wholesale change across a business from a data analytics standpoint um obviously a lot fewer use cases in in that respect so um I guess data transformation, it's almost become its own buzzword, right? In the last kind of 18 to 24 months. So it'd be good to know from you when you're talking about transformation within these businesses from a data standpoint, what does that actually mean and look like and feel like to you? It's absolutely right. Isn't it? When you say the word data transformation and you ask a team of data leaders and you'll get a different answer from everybody. So for me personally, what I've said is that, um, and I keep, I, I translate back to people, but also for myself, is it's part of a business evolution, right? So as businesses evolve, as, you know, the example I tend to use is um, you think about finance and finance business partners, right, which are just commonplace now in nearly every sort of corporate that I'm aware of. Um, but before, it used to be this function that used to work through the accounts and, you know, make sure books balance and everything. And and as time's gone, it's evolved, right? So everyone's learned um, financial skills, right? So every manager, every leader has had to learn over the years, what does a good balance book look like? What do the accounts look like? What does your P&L look like? You know, how does it influence? How can you not influence? You know, so you've had to learn budgeting and all of that, which weren't natural skills of managers, you know, across the piece. So that's an evolution. So when I say we're going through a data transformation. I'm talking about that kind of evil. The business is evolving. It's no longer a group of people or a function that sits in the corner doing stuff. It's, it moves from that to being part of everyday business. And so for me, it's about so two or three things. One is about um, modernizing the architecture, right, where it's appropriate. So we can... Um, push or make sure there are the right business outcomes and therefore you can federate this massive asset that exists in our organizations and help our businesses evolve you know so self-serve analytics or um you know sort of pre-coded pattern recognition software and stuff like that so that for me it's about this whole tools and architecture piece is one part of a transformation um the second part is evolving that culture so going back to the conversation about finance you know, how many people didn't understand what PL was 10 or 15 years ago and now have to understand it because that's where the world has evolved to. So making that analytics, making AI, making data as part of your daily day-to-day life. Um, you know, so for example, 
the example I use, and I use it with my um, family a lot, they're like, we don't understand data. And I said, well, okay, <laughs> let me just say, how many of you have applied for a credit card? And, you know, you get a show of hands. How many of you make sure that the details you enter into that system are absolutely accurate so you can get your credit card application? And they're like, yeah, everyone does. And I go, well, that's it. That's what data for me is about, right? Because you are entering information that's going to give you an outcome and give you a high you know, a credit score or, you know, um, a good a good credit limit is having that personal relationship. So when I talk about the culture aspects, for example, in data transformation is having a personal relationship with data. What you enter is good. Therefore, the outcome, right, is accurate and relevant, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, you know, and then the last bit um is around scalability, right, which is where you sort of started off. And for me, transformation, so the definition is a marked change in form or nature or appearance, right, is a radical change. Um, And I go through the process of, if I look at my credit card statement, I now get um, a breakdown of my spend, yeah, by type. So is it groceries, is it fuel, is it, you know, what kind of shops and stuff have I spent my money at? And you can see a lovely pie chart often on the front page and you go, oh, my God, I spent so much money on food, yeah. And, you know, if I look at a few of them over the month and I see, oh, look, this is increasing. And I know we've got living costs and stuff increasing at the moment, et cetera. But you can see that picture. So, therefore, it creates a thought in your head as a human. What changes can I make? Yeah. And for me, a data transformation program or part of a business evolution program should be what changes can I make as a result of the outcomes? What changes am I going to make as a result of a better data architecture or the culture? You know, so from a business perspective, what changes can I make? From a data perspective, you're a data person, very much in the what are you doing to change an outcome going forward? You know, so I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but that's where my interpretation is. And it is a challenge and sometimes a slow burner when you start in an organization to go, right, this is what we're looking for. This isn't just about building a data platform. This isn't about having a, a great capability if you're not going to use it, because otherwise it's a very expensive program you're going to run here. Yeah. So absolutely. I need your buy-in, you know, to to change. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, you know, it's it's interesting because we all know that, you know, doing whatever it is you know you can have the the sexiest dashboard the most robust platform you know the best quality data but if decisions aren't made and acted upon off the back of it then it's all rendered absolutely useless right however good it it might be so it's a really interesting space I, i guess you get a lot of you know great pockets of work happening like that with specific use cases have you got any kind of tips or you know hints or tricks around how you go about kind of making that happen at scale and maybe thinking about you know places to start because I appreciate you know you you also get into the debate around you know scalability versus business objectives right there's no point in scaling change just for the sake of making it scalable it needs to be aligned so how do you kind of piece all of that together that's really hard. <laughs> um, and I think it's a, so you, you often start with this whole kind of use case, right? So what is the use case that you you want to, you know, what is the business problem you're trying to resolve? Say so I can do this. Let me talk to a couple of examples of where we've done it before. It's always easier with an actual case study, isn't it? Um, so 
in the health sector, the way the, the way the business works is um so hospitals send invoices like line by line literally invoices over to what we call commissioning groups and then they have to be validated and checked and then you go yes that is the right we'll make payment or no it's not right and we don't make any have discrepancies so originally this used to be quite it's not paid i joined post paper stage but you know checking through spreadsheets and spreadsheets of information is quite difficult so what um the team and i did was go well let's have a look at this right this is like a rules-based engine kind of piece of work that we need to do um, but and that was only agreed. So we'll go through a rules-based process, but only if we're going to use the, you know, there's no point investing the time to do the work if the hospitals and the sort of the commissioning groups weren't going to agree that whatever the hospital that chucked out would um would be used in their discussions. So forget about the benefits about reduced time and effort and et cetera and more accuracy and all of that, but before we even went down the path, I wanted we wanted buy-in. I wanted buy-in that we're going to use it. So the only way that came about is we worked collaboratively with the hospitals because it wasn't a, you know, you're doing it wrong. You know, you wanted to avoid that kind of conflict. And that changes that sort of stakeholder and that relationship between organisations in this case it did. So we had to get them to both sides of the party to agree this is a better way around work, you know, around this whole big problem. Because the problem was we're wasting time you know, and overpayments and underpayments are being done. So you work together to create your rules-based engine, right? And then you chuck your data in and outcomes, right? And what you had is a list of outliers that you were able to work with. So people's time was spent on solving the outliers and the majority of the activity, and we're talking thousands and thousands of lines per area per month. Yeah, this is a monthly process that we were doing and it was just really manually heavy. Um, and that we scaled across, like so, the area, the areas in the southern east region. So that is literally anything. If you draw a line off the M4 corridor, you know, you know what? It's so what they call the Watford Junction and down. Yep. So it's to cover that entire area. Um, and that's and that's what and that's how you do it. It, it. it was about, and I've learned over time. It's great you can come up with a wicked idea, but until someone actually wants that idea and actually wants to do something with that, you know, POC or whatever. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And that's the you spend more time agreeing that than you do um doing it. And it's about listening. The only thing, the thing I've learned, you know, in any of these sort of scaled changes is listen to the, you know, whose problem it is. Yeah. Do something small, get their buy-in, and then see how you can scale it. And some things are appropriate, like you said, are appropriate for scaling. Some things aren't. They actually work find the way they are because actually it's more cost effective for the organization to maintain a single database to do something than it is to try and scale it and stick a load of um you know support around it if that makes sense as well yeah it's really fascinating isn't it because i think basically as as you was talking there and as kind of taking it all in i was thinking it's actually it's not necessarily change in the sense of we're changing the way that we work although we are changing the way we work it's more the mindset and the attitude towards how that's received and used right it's more it's more on that side which i think is interesting because if you now think about the role of the data leader i think it's become fairly widespreadly recognized that you know it's not now about how good someone is at being able to build a platform or 
all of that type of stuff. That's the means to the end. It's getting into the business and understanding the problems and making sure that they are going to, you know, use the work that you're delivering and agreeing what success looks like. And, you know, that rapport and relationship building and communication and storytelling and all of that type of, of stuff. So it's, um, it's really interesting. Um, and I guess then I presume from that point, you know, you kind of use those use cases as your case studies internally, right? To so, say, you know, we've done something similar with this team and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah, and you use that. So, you know, another one that um, I just want to sort of touch upon about, you know, think about proper whole scale change is in my previous organisation, we, um, say we, not, it wasn't an easy feat, but a few, you know, because it was so it's open reach it's a national business right so you've got 20 30,000 engineers out there every day um sort of connecting a tv and your phone and your broadband and whatnot um but one of the things that was happened there was we looked at um how do you know what's happening in your area right so if you were a manager of your region how do you know what's happening how do you know that the installations have gone well how do you know there's no faults available how do you know you've got happy customers right common questions I think every business asks right you know what's my product quality like what are my consumers are they my customers and are they happy and can I predict product failure so I can solve it before it happens and what we did there is we started off with a small uh, a area that had a bit of an interest about we want to be able to look at this a bit better and um, created some dashboards so this isn't fancy AI or anything like that this is just some visualizations to help them understand and um, long story short because I can rattle on about this use case forever is we then rolled that out and we rolled that out to the managers that manage these thousands of engineers across the nation mm. you know, so we've taken something that many of us behind a desk use 10 you know dashboards etc have given it to managers who will be at desks but also be in vans with their laptops to look at their area and what that's done for them is less about they know so they know more information on a page and simply about the area they manage but it's also helped them understand their engineers' um, skills and capabilities better. Mm-hmm. So they are able to see which of their engineers have got are, are quicker or more efficient at doing certain types of jobs compared to others, and therefore they're able to reallocate work, which then in turn has led to more customer satisfaction as well. Yeah, you know, so it's you can't when you do scale it, and that was that's I think one of my best stories because I just think. That is a huge scale. It's something really simple, yeah. But it's a bit. But the other, the unintended consequence has been higher customer satisfaction. Yeah. So yeah, and that that wasn't part of the original scope or problem statement, if that makes sense. Yeah. So to, to take you back then to the original scope and, and problem, how, how do you, I guess, quantify? what the benefits are to to get the go ahead to get the buy-in to do that piece of work to begin with can you can you tell us that or so in that case it was really qualitatively it was qualitative feedback from the guys who were testing it and using it and wanting to be part of it and um it's they were telling us it saves them time because it's quite hard to go how do you save you know how do you quantify your roi right and we can have a whole our discussion on ROI use cases, but how do you quantify that it's worked? But and when you get qualitative 
feedback and then the next region goes and does it and they give you the same feedback and not everyone's happy they're like oh we don't like this where we know our engineers do and stuff you know you're always going to get the real people thing but this was a real culture change right this was a this was a this was that radical change I was talking about you know in terms of data transformation you know these guys you know bean managers have done their roles for 10 15 20 years they weren't that interested some of them because they been doing the same thing and we respect the fact that they did but actually it was you know when they saw what the information that could be presented to them and what they could understand you know and what they can do with it in terms of managing their patch or their area better um it gave them buy-in because they could see it was quite funny because some of the things when I spoke earlier on when about the whole credit card when you apply for a credit card right you put the right data in um they you know we show them a map about something and they're like no, no, but I know that's right. That takes four hours. It shouldn't take six. And then, well, it shows six must be down to the data entry. And suddenly you, the other you know, consequence you got was data entry was a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, the, no tips. Um, sitting out in a van with the guys, you know, so ha- trying to understand how they're going to use the this app, you know, such that we create them. Could they use it? Is it easy to see on a little screen and stuff like that you know things like that is what we did as part of that whole change process with the change department because it's not something that a data team can go to point out easily so you know we worked hand in hand with our change department to get that deployment out to the engineers done as well so it's, and that it comes it's that collaborative you really want to do business scale work with your tech team work with your change team your data and have some real key business ambassadors yeah you know yeah, it's a, a great kind of use case, I guess, of, you know, the importance of the power of getting out into the business and seeing actually what these people do, how they do it, right? I think as an industry, we've probably been a little bit guilty of project comes in, project's done, out it goes, and that's the kind of end of it, right? We sat behind our, our desks, which is is interesting. Um, I'm keen to jump into adoption because i know that you know um engineers and my, my dad is an engineer so i can probably say this um of, of a certain age right uh working out in the field in a van traveling etc yeah. um are, are probably not the the most um notable kind of use case to want to change the way that <laughs> they've <laughs> operated for the last whatever 5 10 15 20 30 years as an example have you got any tips or tricks in terms of kind of how you went about doing that, you know, a little more subtly, obviously you talked around then, you know, showing them the differences of what they thought versus what the actual reality was, but was there kind of a, a, a whole scale initiative behind how we're going to get these group of people bought into this, or was it more just being out in there alongside them kind of regular touch points that, that you think worked? So just so adoption i get um so just to go back one step as well is you've got the same problem in every sector yeah. right you've got adoption issues in every sector so let you know to be really clear and i think the thing is for me it was about understanding um looking at past projects that organizations have done whether they be data projects or tech changes or whatever and how have what are the successful projects, right? Which, which how has how has other parts of the business overcome the adoption issue? Does does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we did. Is is you know here and in previous roles I've done is how have other projects 
gone to scale? How have other projects been adopted and how has that culture changed? And take our learnings and the approaches from that. And so, and that's what we did. So we um, realised with this particular project or this programme was partnering with the change deployment function to deliver that adoption because they were ex-engineers that had done stuff, right? So they were talking the same language. Um, some of my data guys going out and sitting in the vans with the teams as well with the you know, engineer managers and stuff also helped because it also just bridged that bit of a gap as well. They're like, look, these aren't people that are just going to sit in the room and say this is the best thing. They're coming out here. They're looking at how we're working. They're trying to understand it. So what the tool that we provide them is more relevant than, you know, the previous, um, than just doing it, sort of pushing it out there. Um, in previous organisations, adoption, it is about... And it, the only tip I have, honestly, Carl, is how has change happened in the past, mm-hmm. right? And many of the, so unfortunately, I've worked in organisations that have got a long legacy and long history. So there is projects of the past that I can, I can look at. But what are the people like, right? How have they um, changed or how, what interests them? So, this, you know, in one of my previous roles, um, in it was a pricing function and they they were really keen on not adopting any kind of machine learning type pricing, you know, when I initially first joined there. And, and I was like, well, but you've moved from spreadsheets to coding, you know, what was it that like we could see this or we could see, you know, we saw the benefit, we got quicker, you know, and things like that. So it's like, what are the things that made them trust that change? You know, and then how do you storytell what you would like to do to help them to do the same thing without taking their job away because that's the other bit right I think a lot of people still nowadays I know we're saying data industries evolved I think a lot of people still feel that it's taking roles away or part of their um control away by you know engaging with data and AI mm-hmm. and it's getting that story like, actually it's not it's helping you enhance what you do um and you're not not everyone's going to adopt and not everyone's going to change so I think that's the other key thing is just having that acceptance. You can't change everyone's mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess you're starting to creep here into the realms of, of culture, which I know are an absolutely huge part of, you know, the, the whole transformational journey. Um, we obviously have things, you know, literacy and education um, alongside, you know, the driving adoption that all kind of eat into the whole cultural debate and you know are cited as the reasons why a lot of data initiatives don't live up to the expectations so to speak uh, i guess first question on this then what's what's your view on the whole data literacy debate because that seems to be speaking opinion quite a lot in the industry at the moment and, and i guess it's probably more just a semantics thing around the wording than the actual kind of meaning behind it but um be keen to hear your thoughts there i think that it does split doesn't it so I'm trying to avoid the word literacy, right? And, and the reason is because you take it literally, it means you're either illiterate or you're not, right? You know, you're literate or you're illiterate. Um, and no one, right, I believe is illiterate with data because we all use it in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people use apps on their phone, they bank, they, you know, so it is, it's everyone gets it, you know, to an extent. But how do you take what they use in their personal lives and melt, make them bring it into 
their professional life. Yeah, so they they have the same standards and expectations as they do in their personal life. Mm. Um, so I tend to use the word a bit more fluency. And I think the thing here is, and we're on an evolution on this journey around culture and fluency and literacy, is because it's about um, what stage of fluency you are at, how fluent you are, and how fluent do you need to be. Yep. I don't need to be fluent in Spanish. Uh, you know, for example, because it's not relevant to the world that I live in. I met someone yesterday um, who is learning New- Norwegian and she goes, I'm learning it because her boyfriend's Norwegian. Yeah, so for her, she needs, she wants to learn so she can converse with his family. Yep. You know, And I think that's the thing for me. It's that, it's that sliding scale. I think it's needed, but to what level of fluency you need around data and analytics depends on the role and that you have and the work that you do or that you don't do. Um, do do exec boards need to know every minute detail around governance and management and all the cloud aspects and APIs, etc.? No, not really. I don't believe so. Do modern data leaders of today really need to know all that level of detail? I, I genuinely believe the role is more around stakeholder and culture management and being able to translate, yeah. um, you know, business and data languages um do i know the latest you know ml models and ways of working no i don't but i know who to go to to find that out if i need to know it does that yeah absolutely yeah i think it's all about relevance is where my head's at yeah makes makes perfect sense so i guess then in terms of tackling the whole you know literacy fluency education piece shall, shall we call it um what what is that relationship between getting that kind of change on that transformational journey and that whole literacy and education piece? Like how much emphasis is is put on that and, and kind of what things need to be done in order to make sure the business is kind of, you know, maturing as that transformational evolution happens? So as evolution happens, I think it depends A, where you are on evolution, where you want to go, right? And the people that you, you kind of work with in your organization I have found having um, business partners so like we spoke earlier on about finance business partners and um, data business partners are able to do that translation for you a good way of educating um, the business you know about um, you know about data etc and I think so, so that's one aspect or is one practical thing that I've done is going, right, this is what I think we need. You know, depending on the organisation, you only need a business partner that can do the translation between two because that's the way it works. You get some organisations that want to understand end degree and have the capacity to understand every aspect of it. So therefore you create um, simple online learning, you know, partnering with an agency or doing it yourself to help them understand um, and they do that as part of their, you know, the annual learning program and stuff. So I think there's a sort of um, a combination of online digital learning, actual classroom style learning, you know, getting people together. Um, and, and when I say getting people together, about understanding, because one of the things I think is really important for our businesses to now get a bit better hold of is what is the analytical process? So as part of your 
to understand, if you understand the analytical process, so you understand the basis, you collect data, you clean it, and then you manipulate it to give an outcome, right? And this, you know, because it doesn't just happen overnight, does it? So it's that whole kind of, you, you can understand that top line process and some of the pain points of that process, it will help you as a bit from a business perspective to understand that when you ask for something, yeah, it will take X amount of time or Y amount of time because these are the pain points that team goes through. Yeah. Um, and I think that in itself suddenly puts a bit of a light on the data culture aspect as well, because once you can understand other people's processes or pain points, you then go, right, you have a better appreciation for data. You appreciate the effort that's gone in to get you that chart or to get you that model yeah. from a business perspective. And I found that's a lot of feedback I had. So initially when I tried to educate people on the analytical processes, they're like, well, that's your problem. It's not mine. And I'm like, yeah, it is my problem. And I completely get that. But I want to educate you. So when you do ask me for that piece of analytics or something on my team, you have an understanding of what goes in to get it to you. And therefore you can help us prioritize because then that's the other aspect. It's not when, you know, you're not ending rooms. And and one of the little things that I use, just bear with me while I try and find it, is is this five statement process, yeah, that helps organizations. I think I use it to help organizations understand where they are on a lit in a really simple assessment about whether on a literacy scale so um it's on a naught to ten scale and what i tend to do is ask my internal stakeholders so my data people as well as my business stakeholders these five statements and just go straight up tell me on a naught to ten ten i know everything zero is i know nothing and the statements are we know the value of data we have the data we need we use the data we have we trust the data we have and we share a common data culture. And when I get that on a picture, this is five so it's really simple. And I mark, you know, sort of tick, you know, everyone ticks off at where they are on it. And it suddenly gives you a picture, right? Right. So you set each of those statements and give me an action. When I go away, what I need to do to upskill or yeah. evolve the culture one step further. Mm. Because yeah. if you've got the data, do you use it, do you not use it? You know, and it just gives you a direction of where to go and where you, where you should focus your energy. So I, I think the last bit of tip on that one is don't try to get everyone's culture to the same level, but don't try and cover every aspect of culture. Mm. Yeah, pick and choose which ones are going to help you at this point in your journey and then do the next bit of the next stage of your journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, great advice. I mean, that those five questions are you know give you a great little snapshot of from a maturity perspective where where you're at right and the areas to start prioritizing in which is is useful i think you know partly similarly to what we've probably learned not to do around the whole transformation piece right you know don't try and tackle that whole five-year transformation piece in one block it's it's too difficult it's probably the same with culture right you can't look at it and go from zero to a hundred in in one go on a you know three-year journey it might take you three years but it needs to be broken down and certain things at certain times so yeah interesting um conscious of times there's a couple of things i want to uh, ask before we wrap up i know that you've got a fairly interesting view on the whole proof of concept concept um just talk us through that will you um 
Oh, this is really controversial now, isn't it? You do realise I have just started my new role. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my view on pox, and this is my personal view, you know, on pox, is I, I, whilst they give you um, a bit of an insight into the art of the possible, I don't think they're the right thing to do. You know, in terms of, I am more of a, I prefer it and I encourage my teams in the past, create a pilot with the business, yeah? So they are part of that process from day one. Um, and so they are bought into this thing and then you're getting them excited and then you can either roll it out or roll it out. You know, you know, you can make it useful. Because in my head is when we do prove our concepts, and I've found this time and time again, is you create something, it sits standalone somewhere and then it falls down and then it doesn't integrate. And then so the longevity of it, once it's done, it gets used. And that's the biggest thing with proof of concepts. You always find that they, you get them and they get used and they become part of operational business. And then you're stuck because then to scale that up becomes a difficult process. Mm. And it's not because I don't believe in the concept of proof of concepts. I've just found in my experience in the data world, we create stuff and we deliver it. And then it's hard to scale it or roll it out or change it. Whereas if you do it with the pilot, a pilot thing for me is doing it properly and strategically with the right, you know, so not full on bells and whistles, but it's on the right platforms. It's got the right type of coding. It's gone through the right sort of stringent processes, which um, when I've discussed this before, not with you, with somebody else, they said, well, that goes against the whole agile concepts. And I kind of go, it does and it doesn't. And, it, you know, it, it sort of swings and roundabouts. But I found in the organisations that I've worked in, um, it's been quite difficult that the pox, um, to get them out of the pox stage. Yeah. And therefore, you make your tech and your data debt even bigger and a harder estate to manage afterwards in the long run. And I'm about simplicity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes makes perfect sense. Um, so the last thing is then you touched earlier upon uh, the whole concept of, of ROI. Um, it's probably the biggest debated topic in our industry at the moment, and I probably imagine will continue to be for the next 18, 24 months or, or so. Um, what is the relationship then between the transformational journey and you know scaling that change and being able to quantify and pinpoint some actual return on investment from going on that journey is that part of the process is that is that kind of agreed at the outset or you know what what's been your experience of tying the two together i think there's two bits i think um in a world where data functions are trying to prove their value there is you know roi numbers created and um delivered or partly delivered and and, and, and as you said earlier on, you know, a lot of the failures have come down to because we haven't embraced the, the we haven't done the culture change bill, the people change bill, the process change bit quite correctly, or you know, that it hasn't run as well. So therefore you never realize your full potential of the ROI. I think what I've learned um where I push towards is the change that happens has to be a business change. So we're changing the business process. And as part of that business process, you're automating part of, you know, you're using AI or you're using ML or you're using data as part of it. The way you would use technology to stand up an application or something. So, and that takes the pressure then off the RI being solely a data thing, but it becomes a whole change program thing. 
Mm. Um, and again, though, having worked in many complex organisations, how do you attribute that ROI? How do you prove, yeah, that data's helped do that, you know, deliver part of that ROI? And you can take different rules of thumb. So one rule of thumb in the past we've used is, you know, 10% or 20% is always due to data, right? And that's that's an easy way. Not everyone's always happy with it. But, you know, or you run, um, I did it once, it worked very well, but I did it once where we ran the project, two similar projects, one with a data input, one without data input, and you could see which one worked better and didn't. Because we only did it on a really small scale because businesses can't afford to um, run that. But for me, it was just about proving that without data, you can't really do that mm. change. Because it may be part of the solution, but it's usually part of the reporting afterwards, right? To say that that change was effective or not. Yeah. yeah. kind of need data to do that. Mm. Um, so we only did it once because we couldn't afford to do, you can't do it, you can't double run things all the time can you um but that was my small example going right it is part of it but it you can still run a project without data it just won't be as effective yeah um, and not the answer you're looking for no magic formula sorry no no no, no that's uh, absolutely perfect well um look conscious of, of time Narelle, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you as always and we wish you the best of luck in your brand new role and look forward to seeing how it all unfolds for you Thank you, Carl. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. <laughs>